Right, take your Bibles, and will you turn with me to Psalm 132? I went over the message last week, and I thought to myself, I took 10 minutes to explain what I could have explained in two minutes. And I thought, oh, boy. <laughs> 10 minutes to explain. And I thought, after I, after, I did, after I listened to the sermon myself, I thought, Gary, did you make it as clear to yourself as you were hoping to make it as clear to others? Well, I'm, I'm sure it was okay, but the point is that this is part two. And I want to make sure that we come away uh, with this with, uh, with a really good understanding of Psalm 132. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray for your blessing as we look at it together. Strengthen our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Some people take the book of the Bible and open it up and they read it no different than they read Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey or, or uh, other old, old, old books. And... Uh, they read it just for the information value of it. They read it just for the entertainment value of it. But to them, it's old material. It's dated. Because it's dated, it's not relevant. It's no longer necessary for us in this day and age in which we live. And that is one reason why I love the history of the Bible. Because if the history of the Bible is accurate, and it includes the past, it includes the present, and it includes the future, then the Bible isn't irrele irrelevant, right? And so today we're going to really nail it down because there's one word in Psalm 132 that we're going to focus on, and that is the word Zion in verse 13. Look what the Bible says in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. And now the only thing that we have to do is we have to define what Zion refers to. Now, I think I told you last week that it's very important for us to pull in as much of the Bible as we possibly can in order to define our terms, in order to make sure our concepts are right. And I'll be very honest with you, I looked, I, I, I went back over all of the, reference that the references that there are to Zion in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of them. I looked at all of them, and I examined over a hundred of them, specifically speaking. And um, sure, as, uh, sh uh, sure as I've understood it, it still means the same thing as I thought it meant 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Zion refers to the city of Jerusalem. It initially referred to the city of David, which was a little section south of the Temple Mount. And then it includes the Temple Mount. And the bigger the city of Jerusalem got, the bigger Zion got until Zion included the whole city of Jerusalem. But Zion really refers geographically to that area of Israel that we know as the greater region of Jerusalem. Does it refer to a person? No. Does it refer to a thing? You can figuratively make an application for that. 
But we need to understand that we're dealing with a geographical location that has a lot of spiritual application to it. Now, there's one other thing that I want to do before we, before we conclude Psalm 132 this morning, and that is this. In order for any portion of God's Word to be valuable for us, we need to find an appropriate application. And what I mean by an appropriate application, and that it would be this, an application that means something for you and something for me. Something that applies directly to me. There are many applications in Scripture that are meant for other people and not necessarily for us. There are many applications in Scripture that are meant for a certain time period, but not another time period. And one of the best ways for you and I to find an appropriate application is to look through a psalm, for instance, like this, identify the persons in that psalm, and then identify with someone or all of them in that particular passage of Scripture. For instance, let's take a look at Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Who is saying that? The psalmist is saying that, and certainly the worshipers that he is leading are saying that. I don't personally identify with David here. David is giving to us a, uh, we're getting some information on David's personal vow to the Lord. And we have his vow written here word for word. David said in the Old Testament, when there was no temple, when the Ark of the Covenant was being moved around and we almost got lost because most Israelites didn't know where it was. For 20 years, it sat out in the boondocks, about in the boonies. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house. David said, I've got a great house. I've built a nice home, but God doesn't have a place. But I'm not going to go into my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And then the psalmist comes back after describing David and says in verse 6, Behold, we heard of it. We heard about all of this. We found the ark in the fields of the woods. And now everything is in place. Let us go to his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. And then there's a prayer as the worshipers are going up to the temple. This is a psalm of ascent. It's one of many psalms that were used when people would make pilgrimages on those three required days or times of the year when they had to go to the feasts in Jerusalem. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. And I see, two, I see a group of people in there that I can clearly identify with. I can identify with the word we. 
I can identify with the word us. And you say, well, this is, this is thousands of years ago. Why are you taking yourself back to that? Because the, the information that's given here is valid for you and I in this 20th century in which we live. You say, how is it valid? Well, here it is. Let us go into his tabernacle and let us worship at his footstool. So if you take nothing away from this psalm, and I hopefully you're going to take a lot of encouragement, you ought to take those two commands or those two recommendations or those two applications. Let us go into his tabernacle and let us worship at his footstool. But I want to add one in verse 9. I may not identify with the priests of verse 9, but I certainly identify with the saints of verse 9, where the Bible says, I ought to be able to do it shouting for joy. Now, you, you'll see the connection in a few minutes. But let's be realistic about this. If this passage of Scripture refers to Zion and the Temple Mount in the time of the Old Testament, and I am told to go into his tabernacle, if I would get an airplane ticket today and I would fly over to Jerusalem hoping to go into the temple, I wouldn't find it to be there, would I? The temple had been destroyed. It's been destroyed for thousands of years. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. So how can I make an application to that? Well, you can come to church, right? I can go into his house in churches all across the United States of America and if I would get a ticket and a plane ticket and I would fly to Jerusalem and I would go into his tabernacle, the only recourse I would have would be to either go into a synagogue to worship or the many, many churches in the area of Jerusalem or there'd even be a mosque or two. Okay? I just want you to know that I'm being realistic. I'm not... I'm, I'm being realistic when I say this to you. And in verse 7, he says to us, let us go into his tabernacle. Let us go into his house. Why do we call churches God's house? We call churches God's house because we recognize, just as Solomon recognized, when he built the temple in the time of the Old Testament, the very first thing he wanted everybody to know is, we are building this place for God to come and meet with us here. He's going, he promised he was going to dwell in this place. Verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And here's a quote from the Lord. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. That's a direct quote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the psalmist wrote down from the Lord himself. But Solomon understood, Solomon understood that God is too big to put into a box. Solomon understood that God is bigger than that. He is bigger than the world. He is bigger than the temple. He's bigger than the universe. 
And so Solomon on dedication day looked at the people and he stood up there and he said, listen, let's not misunderstand. When we talk about God coming and meeting us, that's our expectation is that God is going to meet with us when we worship at his when we worship in his house. But we want to know that we're, we want you to know that we're broadening this. David, my father, said that we're building this place and it was given to me to build it, but we're building it for his footstool. And he, Solomon said, you know what? We can worship the Lord wherever we are. And so when he talks to the children of Israel and he built the, house, he built the temple and on dedication day, he looks at the children of Israel and he says to them, he says, and he gives a prayer and he says, God, you, you're indeed too big to be put into a temple. He says, Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. And so he says in verse 21, which is a pattern on his whole prayer, and his prayer is really lengthy, really lengthy. He says, When we pray toward this place, verse 21, hear from this place? No, he says, Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And it becomes a pattern, and he refers to that frequently. So I'm, I'm able to make an application when the Bible says, let us go into his tabernacle. I can say, let us go into anything that is symbolically his house. Let us go into this place, for instance, thousands of miles away. And let us worship at his footstool. Now, I closed last week with this idea of footstool. And let me just say this to you, that there are three passages of Scripture that I think all of us ought to have in our head and ought to know thoroughly. For instance, we probably need to know Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1, where God talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And in the context of his discussions, he says in chapter 66 of Isaiah, I'd write it down, I'd put a little note and I'd put it in my margin of my Bible and say, whenever I think of the footstool of God, I need to broaden it to include not only the temple, but I need to broaden it to include all of the earth in which we live. What does Isaiah do to clarify it in chapter 66, verse 1? Everybody together. Heaven is my throne. Are you getting that? Do you see it? Here we go together. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. No, he's not... He's not saying, Solomon, you were wrong. David, you were wrong in building a place for me to dwell. What does he personally say in Psalm 132? For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Quote, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision, so on, so on, so on. The second passage of Scripture is in Matthew chapter 5. And I think we all ought to write this one down too and keep it in our minds because in chapter 5, 
This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus talks about topic after topic after topic. And he talks about oaths in chapter 5, verse 33. And notice what he says in verse 33 and following. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your paths to the Lord, your oaths to the Lord, rather. But I say to you, Jesus says to you, and he's clarifying this. He's saying, let's get it right. Let's make sure we understand it completely. Not just bits and pieces of this. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And then finally, in Acts, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned for his faith. And as he's being stoned for his faith, he is giving his testimony. He talks about God's true tabernacle, beginning at verse 44 and following. And he says, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. He goes clear back to Moses and talks about the tabernacle back in Moses' day. Then he brings it up to Joshua's day. Joshua brought the tabernacle into the land of Canaan. In the days of David, it was there. And then in verse 47, Solomon built him a house. And then so that we don't misunderstand that that does not mean, it means that God is meeting with us in a very personal way, but it certainly doesn't mean that he is limited and restricted as to where he can be at, at any one time. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. And he's quoting Isaiah the prophet when he says that. So I identify in verses 6, 7, and 8. And I say, if I get anything from this psalm, I need to come away and seriously consider going into his house to worship. And when I go into his house to worship, I recognize that I'm worshiping at his footstool. I am acknowledging that God is huge. He's bigger than his universe. And it's like his feet are resting on the earth, which is his footstool. And he is sitting on his throne in heaven. And I don't know, when you have that kind of picture of God, I don't know how you can sit around saying, oh, I don't know. I don't know. We're in trouble. I don't know if the Lord is able to help. I don't know if he's big enough to, to deal with the problem. No. You can't say that. So, and therefore, I can, as a saint, when I go to worship, I can what? Everybody together, verse 9, the last three words, I can shout for joy. But there's part two of this prayer, because I want to put this in the remaining time in proper perspective. After the prayer of the worshipers is, Lord, remember David. Look, he vowed to you that he was going to do this. And now we see it's done in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. They have a second part to their prayer in verse 10. And the second part of their prayer is, For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Now you and I are supposed to go well beyond what anointing means in verse 10 
and bring it clear up to the time of Christ. We're supposed to do that. And if your mind doesn't ultimately do that, when you get to the bottom of this passage of Scripture and you see my anointed in verse 17, you've missed something really big. But it starts with the fact that every king of Israel was anointed. And so the whole point here in verse 10 begins with the idea that, Lord, for David's sake, because of everything you promised to David, don't reject the face of your anointed ones. And now, instead of David's vow, we go back to God's vow. And what's God's vow, vow in verse 11 and 12? The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I promise I will do whatever I vow to do. God never lies. He never changes his mind in that regard. And his purpose is always going to stand. And he says in verse 11, quote, the psalmist quotes the Lord under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. And if you don't know what that means, verse 12 tells you. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. And like a lot of people... Whenever you read Scripture, a lot of times we read a passage of Scripture, we get to a certain point, we think we have it all, and then we forget about what the rest of the passage means. And how many times that takes us into serious error. Why do I say that? Well, because there's a big if in God's promise. If your sons will keep my covenant then their sons will sit upon your throne for how long? Forevermore. Did David's sons and grandsons and great-grandsons keep the covenant of the Lord? Yes or no? No. So are David's sons reigning on the throne? In Jerusalem? In Zion? No. And it just, if you want to stop there, you can make this whole case for this modern problem that we're dealing with where, see, you know, the Bible's old-fashioned, talked about Zion, that's Jerusalem, that's the city of David, that's Old Testament history, the, the city of Jerusalem was taken away from the Jewish people, it doesn't belong to them anymore, I mentioned this last week, it doesn't belong to them anymore, and so since it doesn't belong to them anymore, there's no relevancy to this passage of Scripture, it's dead history. Now, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. See, I'm still not away from the Christmas story. I'm still, I'm still right there with the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1. All right. Now, take a look at this. The genealogy of who is given to us here? This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and who is he? He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the real anointed one that's being described in, in Psalm 132. 
Now, we have his genealogy, and we're not going to look at all of these names, but I want to bring to you, I want you to look specifically at a little section of them, beginning at verse 7. Because Solomon was David's son, and he became the king of Israel, and the promise that God gave to, Saul, gave to David refers to Solomon, and Solomon's begot who in verse 7? Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Abijah. Abijah, Asa, Asa, Jehoshaphat, verse 8, Joram. He is listing for us the kings of Israel. The sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of David. And we go clear down through verse 9. We get Hezekiah in verse 9. We get Manasseh. We get Ammon. We get Josiah. And then we get Jeconiah and his brothers, because there was a time right there at the end, we had several of them together. But what does it say in verse 11? About the time they were carried away to Babylon. And then we skip over all of that history, the 70 years of history there, and come back to Israel, and he picks up the genealogy, and in verse 12, the Bible says, after they were brought back from, brought to, were, were brought to Babylon, oh, I'm sorry, we, we pick up the genealogy there, and then we come back from Babylon, but when we do, are there any other kings listed here? No, because the kingship is done. It's over with. Babylon is ruling now. Then Persia rules. Then Greece takes over. Then the Roman Empire takes over. And Joseph has a, a, has a, a wife named Mary that she's, he's engaged to. Engagement back then really meant that practically. And Jesus. He is the anointed one. And I say all this to you because it's critical for you to understand that in verses 11 and 12, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a conditional promise. But that's not the own end of the story. Because in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, that part of the promise is unconditional. There are no conditions to it. When God says what he says in verse 13, he means it, it's going to take place. He can't do it through the line of David's grandsons and grandsons. He's doing it through the Messiah. He's doing it through Jesus Christ. And his promise in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 is clearly this, that he is going to dwell in Zion. It's his resting place forever. Now keep in mind, we're not putting God in a box when we say this, because the earth is his footstool and heaven is his throne. But notice what he says he's going to do. And this is all in the future. The children of Israel are looking at this and they're saying this in the future. He says, he says, I will, verse 15, bless her provision. She will not live in poverty. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will eliminate financial problems and financial despair and, and depressions and all that kind of stuff. And I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall do what? They shall shout for joy. The very thing that you and I should be doing now. And the children of Israel did in verses 8 and following. But here is the punchline. 
There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies, the Lord's anointed, Jesus' enemies, I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. David's horn, the government, is going to grow, and the crown of Christ will flourish. And there is a perfect Old Testament reference to the coming King of Christ. So when we begin the service and we say, our God reigns, our God reigns, this is what we have to look forward to. Now, let me make a couple observations for you that I think are critical for us in this day and age in which we live. I used to go to, we used to go to back and forth from Florida all the time to school, and in order to get there, we had to go 95 south, and occasionally, or very rarely, we would go through the mountains of West Virginia, and back in those days, back in the 70s, there was not the new river, there was not the bridge, the arch span bridge that crosses the new river gorge. Now, when you go to Florida now and you want to go from here, it's four-lane the whole way. It's four-lane all the way down to West Virginia, four-lane all the way through West Virginia, four-lane highway all the way to Florida. And there's, you know, God uses a highway, by, by the way, uh, and several times in the Old Testament to describe the pleasure of being a part of His kingdom. But I'm, I, I, want, I, I want to kind of illustrate it this way. If you've ever were on 19, Route 19, and you had to drive through West Virginia, before they built the world's largest arch-spanned bridge, now it's the Western Hemisphere's largest. I just want you to know that's a massive bridge, isn't it? They close it down once a year to do some bungee jumping. It is massive, and they have a beautiful observation deck. It's a national park there. But if you ever went through West Virginia before that time, you had to travel a two-lane road through the mountains, down through the gorge, up onto the other side, and continue your way south. And if you know anything about that road, you know that it was gruesome. Windy. Down the mountain took a lot of time, took you a half hour or more to do what you can do in 30 seconds or a minute crossing the bridge. And you had to wind your way down through them. We used to do it at nighttime. Think of it's two o'clock in the morning. We're winding down through those West Virginia mountains, down the New River Gorge, and we're winding our way down to the little iron bridge that crosses the river and then up on the other side. Why on earth does God encourage us to shout for joy? Because God is going to accomplish His original purpose. If I were to give you a confirmation, and we'll kind of close with this. There's some other illustrations I wanted to give you. I thought were pretty neat, but we don't have time to do that. But let's go to Isaiah chapter, the passage of Scripture for today. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 2 for just a second. Uh, was it Isaiah 2 or 4? I think, uh, I think I chose Isaiah 2. And then I wanted to go to Isaiah 4. 
But you read it. We read it earlier. For the Bible says, in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house, Zion, shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And out of Zion, verse 4, shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many peoples and everybody together. We can read this. We probably have it memorized. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And that's because our God reigns. Now, I just want to bring your attention to chapter 4. If you would, one of the best things you and I can do is go through the book of Isaiah and look at all these wonderful passages of Scripture that describe the fact that God is going to accomplish His original purpose, regardless of what the world is doing, regardless of the turmoil. God is going to accomplish His original purpose. Now notice, He doesn't pull any punches. He says to us in verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing. Okay? Now, He describes Jesus as a branch. Okay? Just keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. Jesus is a branch, and that refers to a shoot. Joe, Joe can explain it to you very well. How many times has Joe cut down a tree only to have it come back again? Where's Joe? Oh, there you are. <laughs> when we cut down a tree, we want it to be gone. But when I cut down my shrubs, as Joe, you cut down my shrubs, I'm hoping for them to grow again. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and finally, they're three feet tall now again, because little shoots come out of the stump, and they start to grow. Now, the stump is the fallen house of David. You know, the kings are gone. But the shoot that has come out is Jesus Christ. And it's important for you to, I had to understand how, how, how God is going to give us reason to shout. Jesus reading the shout. Now, I just want to say this in passing. I, I was going to get into this, but I decided I, I can't do it for the sake of time because we're really done here. But, but, you know, if you will go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will look at what God's plan and purpose for us is. If you'll end up in the New Testament, there's some wonderful passages. But if you'll end up in the New Testament, when God says to all of us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, you, you and I ought to be praying for our national leaders. We need to pray for them all the time, constantly. In fact, he says that's the first thing you need to do. You need to pray for your national leaders because it's God's ultimate purpose for us to live what? Quiet. These are the three words he uses in that passage of Scripture. Quiet and peaceable lives with all in all godliness. Isn't that what we long for? And God wants it. How many times in the Old Testament God says, oh, when I wipe away all this war and I wipe away all of this and, and I bring my purpose to its conclusion for you, guess what? You'll be, and I paraphrase just a little bit, but there are passages of Scripture that are almost identical to what I'm saying. The paraphrase is not very much off. You'll get to have your nice little cabin by the waterfall that you want in the mountains, and you'll be able to go out and fish, and you'll be able to go out and enjoy, 
and nobody's going to bother you. God wants us to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. That's his ultimate desire. It's his ultimate purpose. And so you and I ought to be able to what? Shout for joy when we worship the Lord in his house. Amen? And especially worship the Lord at his footstool. Because that's the only place you and I are going to be able to see that God is ultimately in control He's bigger than anybody. Nothing escapes his attention. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. There's just nothing God cannot do. Amen. All right. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that we can, we can cross the, the bridge and look back and see that you are working your purpose out. We thank you, Lord, that that's going to be reality for all of us who know you and love you. And Father, we ask for a world that is dying without that hope. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be faithful to you this year as a church, work harder than we've ever worked before, do more than we've ever done before to get the gospel out, not only through all of our missionaries around the world, but here in this country and in this area, and to minister to those who really need hope. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, for your promise to reign in Zion. Amen.